I would sort of say for the neuroscience fans out there or, or people who are curious about the science of curiosity, the same parts of the brain that when we experience hunger or when we experience sexual desire, these sorts of very, very primal things, uh, the same parts of the brain light up for curiosity. And it's led some scientists to sort of say that we are, in fact, a, a type of infovore in that we need to sort of devour information or experience. That was Anthony Rocco, and this is the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to Natural Born Thinkers, a podcast designed to help you live a more creative lifestyle. My name is Sam Hunter, and my job is to help people tap into their creative potential to solve their biggest individual and business challenges. I set up this podcast to reveal the secret source behind the creative thinking process and to provide a perspective on how we can live a life that enables us to more confidently draw upon our natural creativity. I believe that our minds are all uniquely wired to think differently and that the world depends on our diverse creative potential. On today's podcast, I'm chatting with experienced designer, management consultant and entrepreneur Anthony Rocco. The focus of our conversation is exploring the practice of curiosity and the value that living a more curious lifestyle can bring. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was young, the concept of curiosity seemed to have a more negative connotation than a positive one, with adults sharing phrases such as, curiosity killed the cat, or don't ask too many questions. However, in my conversation with Anthony, we reveal the other side of these more cautionary tales as we really tuck into what is curiosity, how can we embrace a curious practice in our lives, and what benefits can it deliver? We explore the ideas and impacts of living a more curious lifestyle as we travel through Anthony's adventures as a child, his time as an experienced designer for an exclusive secret society, his approach to co-founding his new business venture, Architect and Curiosity, and even his time as a pinball competitor. Yes, there is a lot to get curious about in this conversation as we learn how curiosity can help us discover more about ourselves connect more deeply with others, create cultures, and unlock new opportunities which may not ever appear to us unless we have the courage to ask a new question. For me, curiosity is at the heart of enabling us to think differently. So I invite you to embrace an inquisitive mindset and just be in the moment as Anthony takes us on an adventure in curiosity. Hello, Anthony, and welcome to Natural Born Thinkers. Thank you so much for joining today. Hello, Sam. It's such a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for having me. I, I was honestly super excited and honoured that you reached out to be on the podcast. Um, so I've I have definitely been doing my homework to do a good job of this conversation today, particularly because the theme of it is curiosity, and mm-hmm. I literally went on a journey of curiosity to learn all about it and. Mm-hmm. Uh, more under the skin of this natural born superpower I think we have all been blessed with whether we use it or not 
question we're going to explore with each other today. Uh, but thank you so much for uh, giving me this opportunity to be on the podcast with you and also for waking up my curiosity. So double gift. Thanks so much. <laughs> uh, I'm very honored and humbled. Uh, yeah, the fact that you put in so much time and came so well prepared is overwhelming in a way. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, what I have learned through obviously the research that I've done is that your background is super interesting. You've been an experienced designer for some of the world's most famous and biggest festivals, secret societies. You've been in corporate roles and now are starting up your own new business called Architecting Curiosity to help people mm -hmm. live a more curious lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And before we jump into this, I really think it's really important for our listeners to understand your journey and how you have arrived at Architecting Curiosity. Could you share a little bit with us about your inheritance? So how your life experiences have shaped you today and your approach and appetite specifically to curiosity and creativity? Yeah. Um, my story of inheritance begins, I'll start with my mom's lineage a little bit. So my mom's family, one half of it is sort of Italian immigrants to the States that came over sort of turn of the 19th century or 20th century rather, early 1900s. And the other half goes through a sort of Mormon lineage uh, including being part of, which is a very esoteric piece of history, but the handcart Mormons, which were the Mormons that were kind of run out of the East Coast of the U.S. into Utah, um, and before that, sort of uh, a longer British lineage. And that intersects with my dad, where my dad immigrated to the U.S. when he was about 13 years old from Venezuela. But he comes from a, a pretty upper middle class, lower upper class line of of Spanish heritage through South America. So it's it's uh, their family kind of came over as wealthy landowners, you know, during the the period of colonization and kind of maintained that upper class kind of pedigree. But then when my dad came to the US, a lot of that was completely erased. Um, so much so that growing up, my dad did not teach me Spanish, did not teach me any of the cultural heritage associated with Venezuela or Spain. I mean, very specifically, we have a, a, a lineage going back to kind of the Basque country, which is like the Irish of Spain is kind of the best analogy you can kind of give it where they like have their own culture and don't want to be called um, Spanish. Uh, and so a lot of that was completely erased in my dad's attempt as a teenager to completely blend in. And with the fact that having European sort of looks about them can kind of just blend in with the sort of whiteness, um, especially with in the generation that he was growing up, more and more people were being let into the white club, um, the Irish and the Italians and the, you know, the generations that my grandparents came over um, as uh, Italian immigrants, they were not part of the, the white club. So uh, my dad's attempt to kind of become that was, was part of marrying my mom and, and kind of uh, becoming Mormon and, you know, very, it's part of his kind of journey. And so I kind of came into that family and that intersection of those uh, kind of lineages. 
Okay, wow, that's very rich and such detailed insight into your background. With such a multicultural background, um, you grew up in Utah, you are in... Ish, ish. So, so my dad started working for the FBI when I was very young. And part of the way that working for a government agency or the army, you could kind of think of us like uh, an army family, is that you just get transferred a lot. So we would move to multiple cities uh, every two years or so. And so I grew up in what I call basically many American suburbs. They're all kind of the same and kind of different. They all have the same McDonald's. They all have the same Walmart, these sorts of like weird cultural anchors no matter where you go in the states and at the same time there's regional uniqueness uh to what people are more or less open-minded to what the culture is like and those sorts of things so i am a product of american public schools and moving throughout uh, many different regions of the u.s uh, and not being kind of tethered to any single one so yeah, that's that's kind of my complex answer to that question. Okay, no, no. So you, I, I think people listening to this m- may not be able to necessarily recognize and identify of being a family where uh, the father is an FBI agent. But I think, as you sure. framed it as uh, being in an army family, I think a lot of people can resonate with that, or even yep. I guess people in the oil industry who are to yep, do move absolutely. around a lot. So, so you've you've. You've come from a multicultural uh, uh, family. You've moved mm-hmm. all around the states, and mm-hmm. you found yourself um, in college at, in New York, where you went to study film with, at NYU. So, uh, where did your passion for film come in, and do you feel sure. that it has any relation to um, this really rich story that your life? already had by the time you got to this point sure sure so to kind of to kind of weave the thread of curiosity back into the conversation uh i am what some people have started to use the term like third culture uh which is sort of sometimes the the first generation american that is a unique place because i don't necessarily fit into any single culture and through the process of moving it also allowed me a lot of creative freedom to reinvent myself and this wasn't something that my parents told me that i could do i i kind of just had a natural curiosity about like huh when i go to this new school whether it was fourth grade or sixth grade or eighth grade or whatever year we were moving i had an opportunity to present myself in a way that no one had any other context for. And I could kind of reinvent myself. And in doing so, there became a part of me that really enjoyed that formative aspect. And then in middle school and high school, got really into theater and drama and film and cinema. And and the other part too, is that moving so often and having kind of these really short-term relationships of a year and a half, two years of, of this cycle, the relationship that I started to develop with film was a bit of a, a time anchor. It was like, no matter where I went, this film or whatever, and I could kind of have a conversation, stay in relationship with each other. So I became very obsessed with just learning as much about cinema as I possibly could. American cinema, European cinema, world cinema. And started, you know, once you kind of get a hunger for something and you become really curious about something, 
you kind of just start going really, really deep. And in part of our curiosity research, what I would sort of say for the neuroscience fans out there or, or people who are curious about the science of curiosity, the same parts of the brain that when we experience hunger or when we experience sexual desire, these sorts of very, very primal things, uh, the same parts of the brain light up for curiosity. And it's led some scientists to sort of say that we are in fact, uh, a type of infovore in that we need to sort of devour information or experience. Um, and so for me as a, as a teenager, that became that love of cinema. And, and it was also a, you know, there's, there's only a hundred years of cinema. So there's only, there's also like only so much too. Uh, and this was a before the mass amounts of streaming content. So my generation of growing up was VHS and DVD. So there was still a limited amount. And the curiosity then got really peaked when you would find something on early internet where someone would have like a bootleg or a rare DVD of like something that you like had no idea what this thing was. Um, the more esoteric, you know, strange, weird films that you're like, what the hell is this? And that would become part of that love of that thing that led me to be like, well, this is kind of what I want to pursue. And at that time, my parents were very supportive in me kind of pursuing a career in the arts and rather than kind of going with a more traditional route. I mean, my parents, neither of them were very traditional in that sense. So I had a lot of support and appreciate that, uh, that support in pursuing an artistic study. It was also sounded very much like your passion as well, which is just an amazing yeah. uh, space to be in where you get that opportunity to pursue your passion and you're supported to do it. And I, I, there is so much in what you shared just there. And I've never heard the word infovore be before. And, oh, really? And guess, yeah, it's yeah. a good one. No, it's a really good one. And um, and I, I really liked also how you related curiosity back to those basic human functions of sexual mm -hmm. desire and hunger, because I do believe from what I've read and, and obviously just preparing for this, that curiosity does seem to be an innate thing that we have as humans. And you also got to explore your own curiosity through movies and also were able to connect with others on a human level through a shared curiosity. So I, I think you're showing now that curiosity has this great power to connect us as humans. And then going to another layer of what you shared, you also talked about putting on a performance almost and trying on a new identity, being a new persona every time you moved. So you're starting at this point to create this rich picture of uh, a very curious individual uh, who likes to explore places themselves and uh, also how that can play out and change within drama and different stories. And mm -hmm. I think putting those pieces together makes an intro, uh, it helps, it helped me to make an understanding of how did you end up doing what you, what you do? <laughs> <laughs> and because obviously the obvious step that you'd think is, okay, go into film school, do movies, but you found yourself in a very different space, yet somewhat related um, in the Immersive Experience Festival and Secret Society space. So I think you spent a little bit of time working at Burning Man, uh, but mm -hmm. then moved and had a really prominent role in helping to shape and design the Latitude Society, mm -hmm. which 
I, I'm very upset about that the documentary about it is not available in the UK. So I oh, think no. <laughs> so I'll have to get a bootleg copy. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I know. I need to go back and go go with all the film buffs to go and find it for me. Yeah. Would you be able to share a little bit about the Latitude Society? What is it? What did it do? And maybe bring to life the experience of it somewhat. I think that the 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 one piece that I kind of want to say to answer that question of like how does someone go from wanting to make movies to making experiences or, or something like that. And I would say that part of that was one part of it was that I lived in New York city and New York city is a rich space of cultural collision where you're just bouncing into so many different types of people pursuing so many different types of things. And that really opened my eyes to, wow, there's so much more besides just movies um, in terms of what people are interested in. And that was what kind of led me to ending up in San Francisco, ending up in sort of these experiential spaces and becoming part of the, the Latitude Project. So at a very high level, and to your point, yes, there's a lot of information people can find on the internet available about what the project was. At a high level, it was a physical environment that would guide participants through what, what we would describe as an immersive experience. The definition that I liked of immersive is that it deals with narrative spaces. And so to me, that kind of points slightly to entertainment or pretend or fiction that even though it's a real experience, you are physically walking through a space, there is an invitation to put on a narrative layer around it, the same way that you sort of suspend disbelief when you're at Disneyland and you see a character in a Mickey Mouse costume and you're like, it's Mickey Mouse. So, so participants would be invited into this immersive experience and the narrative, which is where it gets a little fuzzy and meta, is that you are being invited into a secret society, one that has existed for you know many, many years, truth being told that it hasn't existed for many years and it's part of the story. But the way in which the game, and this is where it gets fuzzy, is played is that it the, the structure is a, a member's club. You would get an invitation, you would not know what you're doing, you would show up to this place, and the experience, the first experience is that you would be in a dark room with a lit wooden slide and you would go down that slide and you would end up in a now three-doored room and through a series of instructions you would be shepherded through one of the doors which would lead you into a very dark tactile dome that would force you to sort of crawl on your knees into a very very small library that make you feel like you're in Alice in Wonderland that you're very large and this library is very very small you would then receive a animated sort of telling of the origin story from there you would then emerge into the streets of san francisco where you would then go to a bar and there would be humans there that you would interact with to get a special token to take to the next place which would be an arcade you would use that token to light up a, a specific arcade machine to get a, a clue that would help unlock something so there's imagine a video game in real life like you're doing things and interacting with people to get things to get unlocked so my role there was what's called a lighthouse keeper and also like a praxis experience designer and facilitator and so i held people's hand 
during their initiation, whether they knew it or not, some people needed physical support and some people just guided through and I just made sure that was a seamless process. And then once they were a member, meaning they went through the initiation, they were invited to come back and we would have events uh, almost nightly by the time it was fully operational. Every night of the week, we would have some 10 to 15 person gathering and do some set of activities or experiences that would just bring people together. Ever since I learned about the Latitude Society and read more about it, I, I've been going to lots of um, mummy drinks for my, for my kids' school. And, and, I, and I'm sat there and I'm like, I could do this or... Or someone could invent a local uh, secret society for my town, and and that would be so much more more fun. <laughs> As I say, I brought it up, and people's jaws dropped because to them, judgment gets in the way of that. Sounds weird, which I I think mm-hmm. sometimes curiosity can get a bad rap because you know curiosity mm-hmm. killed the cat. Or when someone says that sounds curious, it's just a polite way sometimes of people saying, mm-hmm. well, well, that's a little strange. With the Latitude Society, help people connect ultimately seemed mm-hmm. one one piece of what you shared. Mm-hmm. And then also to deliberately stir their curiosity because I was imagining myself walking down the mission in San Francisco and going down that street that they have to go through to go through the door and was asking myself the question, would I go down a slide <laughs> and would I crawl through uh, the hole? And I think if it's framed as a game and I knew that there was no danger to me, then I I might. Um, but I don't think necessarily when people got the invitation that there were those parameters around them. And I know that you watch people as the, the lighthouse keeper and could tell very quickly whether someone was going to completely freak out or mm-hmm. if they were going to go ahead with this. So I guess the question I had, I was curious to to know, what what is it that you think either helped people fully embrace the experience they were about to go through or drove fear inside of them and and put them on the back foot about whether they wanted to engage or not? There's no definitive answer because everybody is different. We can speculate. I would say that in my experience of observing hundreds of people go through this experience is maybe some of where the seeds of realizing the importance of meeting people where they're at, that that big of an ass can be just plain too much. It's any number of things. The innate fear of giving up control. It's the same maybe that people might feel that fear when they get on a plane or when they're on a boat or when they're in some sort of situation where they believe they're in less control of their lives. It can also be the fear of claustrophobia was a a very large one that people that I would sit with some people and talk to them who had never really experienced claustrophobia. And then given the invitation to like, step into that, realize that they had a pretty severe uh, physical reaction to the claustrophobia, you know, and where those wounds or fears sort of emerge from is is different for everybody in terms of again going back to inheritance. And and I like to think of curiosity in terms of muscle memory, the same way that when a very simple example I like to give that hopefully everyone listening can kind of touch to is you don't have to think about typing 
But at some point you learned how to do that thing. And you didn't learn theoretically, you learned through practice. And curiosity is a muscle. The people that I noticed that whether they experienced that fear or not, that were able to kind of continue on is they had some amount of curiosity, both with, with the external experience as well as their internal experience. They had some amount of internal resources and tools to sit with the discomfort, sit with the fear, take a breath and keep moving or say, you know what, that's good for now. And anyone who was like, you know what, I don't want to do this. I would sort of be like, well, you can either completely walk away or we can just skip this part of it. And you can go and I will tell you what this part is and we'll walk to the next thing. I believe that there's some amount of like when you hit your limit of what you're able to work with, the same thing with a muscle, that anything past that and you're going to injure yourself. They're going to create, you're going to re-traumatize the thing. So as long as you get up to your edge and your edge is relative depending on who you are and what your body is and what your experience is and all those sort of things, then you're you're at you're at the place you need to be. And then from there, we can kind of create the the trust and the conditions. And, and maybe they'll come back in a month and want to try that thing again. And that happened with some people where they were like, you know what, I want to try it now. And I want to like face that fear a little bit and, and walk through this thing. So the piece around curiosity is whether or not people were aware that they innately had that muscle at a, at a strength point that allowed them to continue. That was what I kind of like observed and was unable to articulate at the time. But in the last, you know, seven, eight years or whatever it's been, that's what has kind of been leading me to the curiosity project is keep getting curious. Like, what is that quality that you're pointing to? Of what allows someone to freeze and what allows someone to kind of experience the freeze and yet gently kind of keep stepping forward that's a subtle difference yeah no i i think that's really interesting and i also you you know it comes to the point that if as you are put in a position to be more curious than perhaps what you're used to it starts to teach you things about where your comfort levels live and do you do you have gaps like as you said some people want to go away and come back do they need to go and do some work elsewhere and build themselves up for it and and i really love how you didn't push people beyond the discomfort zone i think with the comfort zone i think it is related to curiosity because it's your personal curiosity to go beyond Mm -hmm. what's normal to you and mm-hmm. obviously, the Latitude Society is pushing people's comfort zones deliberately in, an, in quite a strong way. Mm-hmm. You're not asking someone just to take a walk down a street they've never been mm-hmm. in before. You're putting them through an That's immersive right. experience. From helping people through the intro to the Latitude Society and mm-hmm. um, just watching people move more forwards with ease, did you mm-hmm. see any difference um, in people who'd pushed themselves in this way and gone through what was uncomfortable was there a transformation or something different that they shared they were able to experience as a result of having done it what i would say that i've observed is that as an individual when i have experienced pushing to my threshold and then being able to hang out there or do one more rep that's another way of sort of describing it in terms of muscle building right it's like I can do one more rep. I'm not going to injure myself by lifting or doing more, but I'm just going to do one more. And now all of a sudden I'm in a frontier place that is new. And that's very transformational because it's like, I didn't believe that I could do that thing. So for me, the ways that I've experienced transformation in discomfort is travel. 
every time I moved and was in a new location as a young child, that was very uncomfortable. And I had to, no one taught me how to assimilate to a brand new school with all the social dynamics. I just had to figure that out. And, and then I built that muscle over time and then it became very, very easy. The, the way that I see it in groups is when each individual in a community or a moment is having those sorts of personal transformations next to other people that are having personal transformations, all of a sudden culture emerges. It creates a cultural container. There is the experience of deep bonds, of deep connection. So the way that you see it in corporate culture especially is when a bunch of new hires are onboarded, right? This is the the cohort effect or the class effect. We're all going through a very similar thing right now. It's the discomfort of being freshly onboarded into a large organization, learning the ropes, so to speak. But I'm doing this with a team of people who are all experiencing the same thing as me. Those bonds are going to be built that probably most likely if I maintain those relationships, no matter whether we all stay in the organization or not, we're going to have this very shared connection of this moment in time. And so that's what the latitude as an experiment was really for me doubling down and reminding me of, of the power of not just individual transformation, but when the transformation happens across individuals, the cultural container that's created. And that is where then I became very interested in in culture work. I've been asking myself the question a lot about why is experiencing something, or like whether it be a problem-solving experience with colleagues or going out for coffee with mums from your kid's school, why is an experience <laughs> better than sitting around a boardroom table which is a comfort zone, or going for a coffee morning, which is traditional comfort zone. And I think your insight there about actually breeding stronger connections and a culture that could form is so true because once people are in the comfort zone, they're playing their comfort zone and they might have a facade that they put on with the niceties and pleasantries or if it's in the corporate world, playing the game that you know to play mm -hmm. because that's what's cultural. Mm -hmm. But by putting people in experience, where everyone's a little uncomfortable, you're asking people to respond in a human way and have mm -hmm. um, individual reactions th that have a net effect if it's all happening to the group at the same time. So I think mm -hmm. for me, what you sh shared is really powerful about why experience, why experience versus stay in the comfort zone. Right. And the thing that I'll kind of pull on a little bit, too, is the piece around experience to what end in that I believe that this is a little bit of game theory that I like to overlay in things. And there's a really fantastic book called Finite and Infinite Games. People should read it. Uh, but the, the high level version of that is kind of looking at the lens of the implicit games that we're playing in cultures. Are they competitive or are they cooperative? You can play a competitive game that is still cooperative. So if you and I, Sam, like I was really into tennis at one point, and if we were really good chums and it's just like, you know what, every Saturday we're going to go play tennis with each other. We're friends. There's, no, there's, you know, we can kind of get competitive in the moment, but actually what I want from you is to bring out the best game in me, you know, so you still have to play competitively and yet I want you to help me 
be better and have fun at this thing, right? Versus like strict competition where there's no friendship or cooperation, where it's just like, I am here to beat you and here to win. And if you translate over to corporate culture or just capitalist culture in general, the the competitive games that we play internally in our cultures actually create a lot more of that safety zone because it's, I want to risk the least and I want to win the most rather than in a cooperative setting where it's like there's a lot more risk because I actually believe in the risk, I'm going to learn how to do better things, learn different techniques, but that's actually going to be very vulnerable for a period of time because like learning anything in that way, it's going to take time. I'm not going to actually be good at it right away. So it requires that sort of cooperation, that trust, that team building that we like use all the buzzwords for to say, no, I actually trust this person to support my growth the same way that I am then supporting their growth. So there's, there's a culture of supported growth rather than I've reached a place and I'm afraid of other people reaching that place. And so I need to keep them down and sort of all the, the dynamics that kind of play out there. But to that point of why experience and not just another talk or meeting or something like that is that those those sorts of formats of interaction don't strengthen the muscle the same way that if we go out on the tennis, like you and I talking about our tennis game, you know, we're not going to really shape that much more. Maybe you'll give me a few tips and I'll like do it, but I still got to take it out onto the court and start practicing. So if we get into experience and get into doing and get into working and get into playing, all of a sudden that's when we're sharpening our abilities with each other in real time absolutely love that you said at the latitude society that you would yes you go through this intro experience but then you come together again and again for for different Mm -hmm. praxis Mm -hmm. and i know Mm -hmm. you designed those praxis and you shared that Mm -hmm. they were different experiences Mm -hmm. each time how do you like once you've gone through this initial breaking of the comfort zone and and people starting to open up and become members of society like what did you try to do with the within each praxis to keep moving this culture on and keep um keep people wanting to come basically <laughs> as the old joke goes that you kind of write what you know or you you play the songs that you like this is where for me I was just playing the music that I learned growing up in the Mormon church. There's a lot of complicated things that I can say about the Mormon religion, but one of the gifts that I got out of that was the cultural and community building elements that are really easy. The ways in which on a weekly level, you had specific activities to do with the family. You had specific activities to do with your friends. You had specific activities to do with the larger church. And, you know, there's actually a lot of South Park episodes that uh, joke about some of these like activities where it's just like, we're going to all get together and like make macaroni art. And that's actually one of my favorite South Park episodes because the the South Park boys just like keep thinking that there's like some deeper like thing other than just getting together mac- macaroni art. And as someone who grew up Mormon, it's like, no, honestly, <laughs> that's all it was. Like we just wanted to get together and make macaroni art. And that's kind of the joke at the end where part of doing real culture work isn't about getting to someplace or how do we keep growing the culture or changing the culture. No, it's just about quality time together. And so that like, that seems like a very too simplistic of an answer, but 
in the praxis that I was doing, I didn't have tons of money. It was like, Anthony, what can you do with nothing and entertain 15 people? And so it's like, we're going to do charades. This is an old parlor game. I didn't invent it. I'm going to facilitate and conduct and just give everyone permission that we're going to like sit and do charades. And I would, you know, ladder this up. We would play charade words that had to do with like some of the, some of the storyline things and stuff like that. We would do a night of improv. We would do movie night. We would do, um, you know, dance night. We would do like these other things and all kind of, you just shroud it a little bit in the context of the story. And it's like, you, you know, we're going to do poetry reading and everyone would come in and write some poems and read. We would do crafting night. So there was nothing terribly complex or terribly immersive about the praxis. What it was, was quality time with other people in the room. And that is what solidifies culture and it is what as humans, as being tribal creatures for millennia, that our nervous system, whether we are conscious of it or not, is starving for. And so when we get that thing, when we get that sense of tribe and safety and home, and all of a sudden, like, I'm here with other humans and we're just here it's like, well, of course I want to go back there. That's the thing that I've been longing for in this isolated Christian capitalist culture for a really, really long time. So that that to me is like, there's no magic, like, oh, you do these things. Like, sure, there were times where we would do really weird meditations and eye gazing. But like, also, we sometimes we just played charades and it was that simple. Uh, and so that that is that balance of the, when I explain this to clients or organizations about culture building, it's not about a single cultural event. It's not about hosting a once a year, big cultural spectacular thing. It's about what are you doing with regular quality time, the same way you would with your family, the same way you would with romantic partners or friends or whatever. Quality time is what builds culture over time. I read an article because I couldn't watch the documentary, remember, but I read an article that someone had written about their time at the Latitude Society and they said mm -hmm, that people mm -hmm. just craved craved this interaction and couldn't wait for their mm -hmm. invite and would make sure that they could go. And mm -hmm, and I, mm -hmm. it's interesting, you know, you talk, you know, people who love roller coasters love roller coasters and crave those That's experiences right. and people who love yep. to travel crave it. Mm -hmm. Why do you think people can become, I guess, somewhat addicted to the lure mm -hmm. of an experience that they're passionate and curious about, I suppose? Well, it goes back to speak from like a neuroscience place, right? So the curiosity and experience, there's a physiological function. And part of the system that we have woken up in is one that is designed to be addictive. So, you know, almost as Gabor Mate would say, it's like, it's actually more surprising that someone would be not an addict of some kind in a system that is literally designed to be addictive. Um, you know, capitalism is literally designed to be more, 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 more. So it just kind of depends on what people point that to. For me, my addiction to experiences was by way of chemicals, but the chemicals were just the doorway to the experience, which is very sort of circular in, in the logic. But if you kind of understand that 
when you start doing certain drugs, you start hanging out with certain people, you start going to certain parties. And it was like, it was those spaces and those things that I was interested in. It was those experiences and going back and having more of that and having more of that and having more of that. So for someone to have an intensely novel experience, whether that's the Latitude Society or whether that's going to Disneyland and going on a roller coaster, which is not their everyday life. Or for some people, it can be sports. So in the States, there's a lot of people who are deeply connected to watching their team, whether whatever sport it is, right? And you're yeah. in the UK. So, you know, you know, football and infamous British football hooligans and that sort of stuff where it's like <laughs> yes. the, 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 the ride of intensity to like having that experience is like, it's part of the, the thing that they want. They want that like intensity of feeling alive. And it's connected to when the curiosity is peaked that way, the same thing as the hunger, the same thing as the sex drive. It's, the, it's what we would call a peak experience, right? Uh, it can be a sense of flow. It can be a sense of, of, you know, I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. Some would call it religious, you know, like however you want to kind of describe it. But there's a, there's a thing that happens. Uh, it can be from watching your favorite football team to going through the Latitude Society. And it, it just depends upon your context and what's going to activate that part in you. And where the addiction sets in is when that experience is not integrated. That's a, that's a word, but basically that you're able to sort of take that peak experience and disseminate it into the rest of your more mundane life, although I don't like those sort of judgment terms, where one can begin to learn, and this is a bit more like, you know, my Zen teacher coming out of me, but where one can start to learn to soften that tide of high tide and low tide to more like, oh, I can kind of have a peak experience just by being really present with my morning cup of coffee or with like playing with my kid or with, you know, working on this project with the tea. Like I can, I can find the focus and the magic. And this is where then the muscle of curiosity is really necessary. The muscle of curiosity allows us to find that peak experience more throughout our everyday. It doesn't need to be a roller coaster. Although when I'm on a roller coaster, I'm going to have a lot of fun because I really enjoy roller coasters, but I don't need one every day to like get through my day. Um, and so that's like the subtlety. And, and until one is able to kind of find that inner balance a little bit more, then the, the craving will overwhelm the kind of the ego or the thinking mind to pursue getting that thing more and more and more thinking that everything else is basically shit unless it's this high you know so yeah this this like high that you have yeah that's really interesting i mean this is such a small example in comparison to that but i used to be terrified of doing a headstand in yoga which is the final pose in ashtanga sequence okay so i want to i want to i want to pause you there what what was it that terrified you about it the fear of falling the fear of falling that's a great fear right yeah yeah okay and so obviously you can take that you're the, gonna like fall and injure yourself or something yeah and break yeah, my yeah. neck okay, like the worst possible case scenario yeah yeah. Um, yeah yeah because mm -hmm. i'm very creative so clearly the worst thing would happen in the first time that you fall um <laughs> and i could just see you playing out these scenes of like oh yeah the visual you know, is all oh, there yeah. yeah 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 so great 
I was ter- and, and obviously you can play that out, fear of falling and life, you know, but no, it was just on my yoga mat and it really frustrated yeah, yeah. me that I could not finish it. And um, yeah. a very nice yoga teacher helped on pushing me to help me do it. They didn't like to the point of comfort zones that we've been talking about. They didn't just throw me up yes. in the air and just leave me. It right. was always just a little bit. Of, yeah, a little bit at a time, because uh, I guess the, the head of the, the Mysore practices used to say, you know, all is coming if you keep on practicing. So yes. eventually I landed the plane and I can do it like and I love it and I used to couldn't wait Mm -hmm. to go back to practice every day to see if I could do it it became Mm -hmm. something that I was really curious about if my body could do it and what would happen Mm -hmm. at the end of the line once I I did it Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know I so I can resonate with that chemical reaction to wanting to go back and that curiosity peaking for that that moment in time. Mm-hmm. My curiosity has never grabbed me enough to try and do it without a wall behind me. I still have to have a wall behind my legs because I haven't kind of got over the fear of falling. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I guess after this conversation, I am going to curiously figure out whether I could do that or not. But I, I love how they, what you're saying there about, okay, so that's this practice in time. And yes, I craved going every day and then it became part of my everyday and I could enjoy it, and I still enjoy it every time I do it. But I love how you're bringing curiosity doesn't just have to be this thing that you do outside of your life once and it's exciting and then you can keep on coming back to it. It's about how can you make that part of your every day. I guess almost ties up this piece that we have because I think we're starting now to move into architecting curiosity as a lifestyle, which is where you are now. So I do feel for people who've come this far with us on on the adventure in our podcast, now people can see how the pieces of the puzzle of your inheritance and your life journey have landed you at (laughs) your next uh, project, which is architecting curiosity, uh, a Mm -hmm. business focused on helping people uh, live a more curious life so again there's always there's going to be a linkage here for folk but where were you when you had or what gave you this inspiration to start architecting curiosity and what do you hope to achieve yeah the way that i would kind of describe it is that it feels more like curiosity was sort of knocking on our door me and my partners pim and monica um sort of the way that again i'm i'm an artist at heart the way that when you're writing a song you know are you writing the song or is just you kind of listening to the thing that kind of wants to come through and and so even though we engage in the world of sort of business the artist in me was actually far more interested in doing a side project, so to speak, that didn't have to support me or the team financially, because I had done a number of projects like that in the past or, or built businesses, both in the immersive design worlds and, and consulting worlds and stuff like that. So I was more interested in doing the way that an artist or a band wants to do an album that they just want to try some stuff and not sure if it's going to actually resonate with anyone. I want to just try some stuff. It feels like this thread of curiosity has just followed you or, or led you mm-hmm. one or the mm-hmm. other all the way mm-hmm. to now. What do you hope to achieve now you've decided to stand us up? Yeah. So we were kind of, the team was having a, a talk about this like last week and we were really sitting with like two big pieces one is 
this dream of how I'll ground in the context of education as the way in which most things are taught in the way that we learned. Those systems were designed at a time where retaining information and also making connections between information that our brain was the only instrument to do that. And we now live in a moment where that is not true. And yet the educational systems are still running the same sort of operating system that they've run for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so we were talking about how the idea around what it would look like a dream or a vision of a future place where education across any generation from from young to old because i also believe that the idea that education stops at a certain age is is a fallacy that i've met people who are in their 80s and still learning and curious and asking young people to teach them things is is some of the most impressive role models i've met and so that idea of curiosity curriculum and education that teaches us as humans to sharpen this, strengthen this muscle, this ability, this gift, this innate quality that we have as humans in a way that has yet to fully be realized. And so what I mean by that is oftentimes, especially when we watch the growth or if someone has themselves experienced the trajectory inside of a hierarchical organization, and if they haven't, and they kind of have to take our, take our word on this, that oftentimes... <laughs> It is this it is this experience of like needing to always have the right answers until you move up to sort of managerial and then executive roles where you're like the ones kind of asking the questions. And I really do believe that there is a future where more of the organization cohesively can have a curious culture or to that point, people use the term innovative or, or things like that, creative or whatever they want, where the teams of people are strengthening that ability to ask sharper questions, to ask questions that don't always seem relevant. Like that's where curiosity is really important is the questions of like, well, what if we did this? And what, and these sort of things that we use in our curriculum of these certain principles of, of like suspending to, to step into a, a more open space to ask questions, that actually leads to real innovation or to real evolution. The collision of random sort of stimuli with the right questions will kind of emerge a very, very special sort of situation. So that's one it's a very large macro like dream of like we see the wave of curiosity sort of coming where it's like everyone's like, well, what about AI and all this sort of stuff? And it's like, well, yeah, machines are pretty interesting. That's pretty fascinating. But also I am as a human more interested in what's happening inside of me. This is where my kind of curiosity lies. And what are the things that that I see as this like innate special human quality that maybe can be replicated in a machine, but even once it's replicated in the machine, then what are the questions that the machine is asking is probably going to be profound questions. So to be able to meet that machine, I have to strengthen my own sort of inner muscle. So that piece, and then at a kind of bringing it down to a <laughs> shorter time horizon or like in the near future, I really hope to see this project begin to 
peak curiosity in a way that we were talking about Brian Grazer's book, A Curious Mind. And Brian is one of the major inspiration in us kind of anchoring in curiosity. And that book is such an amazing read in that Brian really says that for all that curiosity has brought to his life, it's not spoken about in public. And even to your point earlier, it's often used in a pejorative way. You want to say someone is curious, but you don't actually want to invite them into the conversation. If someone is actually being too curious, then they're a risk to the project or to the thing or, or uh, to the company or whatever. So, so that idea that our band and whoever else is kind of on the wave with us, and I see a few other people kind of out there like Brian Grazer, where it's like there's a wave that we're kind of riding and kind of championing this this piece around remembering our innate curiosity and how that shows up at work, at home, in life in general. And how do we begin to create a dialogue and share what it is for us? Because that's the other magical thing about curiosity is it's different for everyone. The things that I'm curious about, you're not curious about. Things that you're curious about and how you play with your curiosity is very different than me. But we can learn a lot from each other once we kind of bring our our toys and our tools to the sandbox and begin to show each other. It's like, oh, this is what I do when I'm really curious about something. And that to me is is a big missing piece in terms of just shifting culture at large um, in terms of how to kind of construct that dialogue. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely love the ar- architect and curiosity. My only challenge with it right now is it's available on, on Pacific time. And whilst yes, I would I know. absolutely rather be in California, um, I, the reality <laughs> is I'm not. Um, and I would absolutely love to go through uh, one of the journeys that you offer as part of it. Yes. I love that you called it journeys. Someday soon, will be on more time zone. I will but, be on you know. that journey. Um, <laughs> but I've gone on my own version of it since uh, preparing for this. I, I love what you say there. So natural born thinkers is about thinking differently to help you solve mm-hmm. your biggest problems. And there are so mm-hmm. many books out there on creativity and developing a creative mind. But mm-hmm. for for me, <laughs> you, you know, where does creativity start? Uh, it starts right. with a question. <laughs> um, yep. That's right. And and I think thinking differently and living differently, thank, frankly, with curiosity is mm-hmm. um, something that I really am excited to bring into, into this podcast and into people who listen to this into their lives. Because with curiosity, I think that the, the definition we've been playing with here is, is mm-hmm. us. It starts with asking a question. And then I also mm-hmm. think there's an active verb that goes along with it, which is then being curious enough to go and and do or try. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. people can really start to become, to architect their own life adventures by asking different Mm -hmm. questions and then going and trying, which is the individual lifestyle component. But I also love your ambition for down the line of everybody, I mean, everybody in a workplace being open to throwing those curious questions into the mix. Very excited about (laughs) architecting curiosity. And if we haven't sort of to started to allude to the benefits of living a more curious life in architecting curiosity as an organization, what do you communicate as the benefits to people uh, attracting and adopting more curiosity in their life? It's a range of things um, and it differs depending upon context. So Sometimes what I would say is um, most recently, here's an example. Someone joined the class 
who's a project manager and was very excited in terms of bringing the sort of the curious principles and some of the some of the frameworks and things and, and applying it to the team. And that had an impact. And yet, at some point during the course, they were sharing how actually completely surprising to them and actually very curious in a way, it was impacting their romantic life. They're currently single and dating and all these sort of things. And they started watching themselves be curious in ways about their dating life that they hadn't before. And, and so it's not, the course isn't necessarily you do this and you're going to like get, you know, benefits in your romantic life. You're going to do this and you're going to have work. It's sort of contextual to how and where you want to apply those practices because to what we've been talking about, it it is a way of living, right? And so different dimensions of our life, whether that's work or romance or family or friends or hobbies or whatever, we can be curious in those spaces and less curious in other spaces. And what the current curriculum will highlight is not so much the places that you're already curious, because you're already curious in those spaces. It'll oftentimes highlight the spaces that you're not so curious, that you for whatever reason, have series of assumptions or judgment or have been shut down or think that you're just like, have this pattern that you're kind of playing out. And so that to me is more where the the benefits that will arise is sort of saying like, oh, this, I'm far more curious about my relationship with my kids than I thought that I was. Or there's this person at work that I just kind of wrote off and now I'm actually developing a relationship with them in a way that I didn't expect. So it's again, it, it's both a, a lifestyle benefit. You're going to kind of feel better about your life in certain ways. And that has to deal again with the cultural and connection piece of how are you building these relationships and what does that kind of look like? And that can be applied to any dimension. We at the moment, you know, because all of us are kind of coming out of corporate consulting sort of backgrounds and that sort of stuff tend to attract that being a large majority of our students. And it makes sense because oftentimes a lot of people who find themselves like yourself after 13 years, 15 years, 20 years in a, in a role, even sometimes with the title creative director, <laughs> you know, and they went to art school and they're like, I don't know why I just feel like I'm not being creative in my job. You know, for, for whatever reason, they've shut down that part of themselves. And to your point, again, it's one thing to just say, like, I want to be more creative. But underneath that, we need to re-spark what the, what the root of that is. I guess it, it's, there's a piece of architecting curiosity, which is design your own adventure, which is ask yourself mm -hmm. a question, you know, a powerful question, I guess, is why do you want to get more curious? And then what is mm -hmm. it specifically, what area of your life do you want to get more curious in? And even to that question, like something that we kind of push against a little bit in the curriculum and stuff like that is, is that pure curiosity or, or true curiosity, capital T, true curiosity, really wants the space without having to have a goal. And that's, and that's a rare thing in conditioned capitalism where you're sort of like, well, what is the point of doing something? You know, I need to harvest something or I need to have this like benefit on the edge. And it's like the subtle, the subtle benefit of being curious without needing a benefit is like, that's, that's something that you used to give yourself as a, you know, that childlike wonder that, that space to play with something and have it go nowhere. Right. And this is actually 
the true space of innovation, like any any classic innovation story of, of someone, it's like, you know, if we wheel out the, the Edison, you know, example of like, oh, well, Edison put together, you know, you know, all these experiments to make the light bulb work or something like that. It's like, yes, there was a, there was an end goal, but there's also just doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again um, ends up with the sort of end goal. But you have to kind of hold the paradox of, what if you just wanted to be curious about this very esoteric thing that you really like? I think that's just what's exciting about curiosity, which is, you know, going right back to the beginning of this conversation, like what is at the bottom of the slide in that latitude society? Yep. Like there's an opportunity for surprise and delight. And when you're just, mm-hmm. you're architecting your own curiosity, you're in control of surprising and delighting yourself and, and going on, yes. on this journey. And, I know through the research you've done, you've identified certain principles that people mm-hmm. should seek to adopt as they refine this curiosity muscle. Can mm-hmm. you share what those are from a, a high level? Yeah. So what has emerged through this project is six principles. And I want to, especially for, I believe, your audience, speak to two pieces that were profound shifts for me. The first was going from a value to a principle. And when we use the word principle, we're describing a way of being. And so we use verbs rather than a value, which is oftentimes some sort of noun or adjective. And so the the prime example is the difference between generosity as a concept and the principle of gifting. So there's lots of ways I can be generous. I can be generous with my time. I can be generous, you know, with just opening the door or something, you know, like there's generous generosity. But if I said like, well, we actually have a practice of gifting X amount of dollars or something like that. That's like a, a more like physical, real thing that we're actually doing. So that's a, that's a huge kind of major shift. And I want people to really kind of consider, especially if they work in organizations that are mission, vision, values driven, that they have certain values and, and these sort of missions. We're really at this point starting to work with teams and organizations to move away from that mission values system to really creating principles and practices, um, which allow for Again, going back to the cultural container, the creation of real culture rather than sort of ideological culture where it's like, oh, well, we all believe that this is the value, but in our day-to-day practices, no one really lives up to that. And I know you probably have experienced that firsthand internally and also working with clients externally. So that's a big major component. I think there's, there's multiple ideas coming through this about curiosity. And I think we've also managed to weave in a culture conversation here as well. So if there is mm-hmm. anyone listening who's thinking more about thinking differently about creating culture, that is an excellent learning and insight to take. Yeah, well, for me, you know, I think of myself less as a person interested in curiosity, and I'm just someone who's curious about culture. And so for me, where I enter the project is thinking about cultural technologies, like what, what are the, the things that we're doing that generate culture or maintain culture or, or things like that. So that's why the principles are the way they are. At this moment in time, six have emerged. There may be more. There may be less at some future point in time, whoever's listening to this, whenever they're listening to us. 
We also, similar to any sort of muscle training system, stack them progressively, right? So if you're learning how to do swimming, you're going to, you know, first get comfortable in the water <laughs> before we Float. like floating, floating else. would be a good principle. Like, float, <laughs> breath, hold your breath. You're floating, breathing. breathing. Like, <laughs> like, you know, like you forget how much you probably did to just get comfortable in the water before adding anything on top of that. So again, with any time, and especially because I've worked in organizational transformation, people move so quickly to advanced technique. And it's like, whoa, we got we to gotta just stay right at the base level before we add progressive steps onto it because that's you're building on top of, of muscle memory. So the way that they work, and I'll kind of move through them rather quickly, is in that progressive nature. So the first one is observing, and it is a pretty universal concept of observing, of taking a moment to take in your experience in the moment. So I'd invite you and like the listeners to actually just observe where they are, the location they're in. Uh, they can take in the colors, the shapes, the sounds, the the temperature. Maybe they're inside, maybe they're outside. Take a moment to like look up, look down, look all around. This is a way of just taking in all of the present time information rather than allowing your mind to kind of go into past and future and fantasy and all these things. Observing is a way to just kind of bring you back to like what's happening right here and right now. From that moment that we're able to actually observe what's happening, we then go into suspending. And suspending is kind of the same muscle that we learned at some point. I learned it described as the suspension of disbelief. When I started learning what fiction was, when I watched a movie for the first time and someone explained to me that those are just actors pretending to be, and from then on, I can suspend my disbelief unless they're really bad actors and then my yeah, that's just disbelief difficult. is broken. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's just, and then, it, and then you can feel the effort of that muscle having to shift itself. So suspending is when I'm in a meeting to invite suspending my assumptions because I've been on a project like this before, because I know the outcomes of a project like this before, any of those kind of predetermined things, my assumptions about this new onboard hire or this manager that I've heard stories from, just to suspend those, not to say that that's not valuable information, but to try to, as much as I can, step into the meeting or the moment or the project with as much sort of meeting it where it is right then, letting go of, of those kind of predeterminations. The third one is then apprenticing, which again gets a little more difficult. It's where we invite ourselves and each other to step into doing new things, learning in the same way that a beginner is learning. You are not good at it at first, the same way I described the typing or riding a bike or learning a language. There's a big difference. The word learning can get applied to like learning some sort of idea or cognitive thing versus learning a technique that takes time and your muscles are going to adjust. So apprenticing as a technique, as a principle, is important to keep the brain, as we were describing, nimble in that learning process. The more you can kind of give it 
things to kind of chew on, whether that's in physical activities, whether it's in, you know, learning an instrument or things like that, the more neuroplasticity the brain is going to have to, to be curious and make those connections in that way. The fourth one from apprenticing is what we call ritualizing. Ritualizing is for me, the shift from, okay, I have technique down, now I can kind of play. So it's when you now kind of are able to jump into the water and just kind of play around, you can explore the limits of what you're capable of doing, explore ways of swimming or ways of being. It's the way that you can kind of improvise dancing or something like that. There's a more finesse to it. You can kind of bring the ritual alive rather than just kind of doing the the hours of learning the thing, if that sort of makes sense. Um, and it's really important to ritualize together and alone of giving yourself that time to like go play with the thing. Like, oh, I can do this thing now. Now I'm going to go like play with it and create a little ritual out of it. Uh, the fifth thing is then gracing. And gracing is then on, t- <laughs> on top of just being able to make a ritual out of it, uh, where is their beauty? Where is their love? Where is their humor? Where is their ease? Um, this is a really fine and subtle point. But the way I use gracing as a very advanced tool, and I'll subtly ask these questions, because I know I've worked with people where if they actually deeply answer these questions, it can be kind of surprising. But you begin to ask yourself, like, say I'm working on a project, Like, what about this project is beautiful? What about this project do I love? Do we love? What about this project is bringing me joy, humor, sort of that, that, that quality. And what about this project is, is bringing ease to my life or can I bring more ease to this project? Um, And those are deep and profound questions. And that's why the Brian Grazer book, he's very honest and kind of vulnerable in some moments where he's like, I've worked on a few projects for a number of years, get to a point where I ask the team, like, are we still in love with this project? And if the answer is no, then we have to like have the serious conversation with ourselves to be like, well, why are we still doing it? And we've put projects down and I've, I've had to do that for myself. So it's a very advanced level of being able to ask those questions and really listen to your inner answer of like, I don't, I don't think what we're doing is, is this right. And then lastly, the sixth principle is the principle of flowing. And this is cultivating a quality of both flow of moving moment to moment. So this is sort of an advanced version of observing. It kind of comes back to observing a nice little kind of cycle. And it also holds in it the quality of impermanence so that knowing that the project is going to have an end date, the constellation of your team is someday going to end. And can you enjoy what is here presently knowing that it's going to someday change? And the question we use in that space is, am I really living with no regrets? Like if if today was the last day at my job or the last day on this project or the last day in this relationship of any kind, like, Am I leaving that thing without any regrets? Like, will I feel like I've learned? What have I grown? Who am I that I feel like I have changed through that thing that feels like it was worth my time of investing my life in, in that chapter of my life, right? Obviously, the curriculum, we break each principle apart. We start to not just learn about it conceptually, but we start applying it through exercises, through ways of working with partners and in groups of bringing that principle to life inside of ourselves. And then through the curriculum, people are then encouraged to play with that principle in their daily lives. Like the classroom is not 
so much when we're facilitating, we're kind of sparking the principle in people and then their classroom is their daily life. I think they're wonderful principles and um, your class your classes sound amazing because it, you know you've, you've alluded to it a little bit and that people get to pick their own adventure to decide you know what do you want to get curious about you educate mm-hmm. them on these principles that they get to get curious about in their everyday life you know you talked about making sure that the experience isn't something that's outside and addictive but assimilating mm-hmm. it into the everyday as mm-hmm. someone who is leading this next wave i guess of or, or or creating this next generation of very curious people like how do you mm-hmm. keep curious because you've done so much <laughs> and so many interesting things like what is it that you feel mm-hmm. sparks you to keep on asking different questions and pushing the bar on on your life adventure? That's such a good question. So this is then where we talk about practices, right? So principles and practices. And to your point of practice is practice is lifelong. It's not, a, and this is what I always kind of tell clients or organizations. It's like, this isn't done in a weekend workshop. This isn't done in a week-long workshop. This is practice is how you live. Uh, and that can seem daunting, but it once you kind of find the grace there, right, mm-hmm. then it, it opens up. My practices, um, especially because of the way that I grew up, travel is a major one. Um, and so it's actually been really interesting for me in a time where travel was sort of uh, inhibited in, in this COVID uh, pandemic time, where it was like, that was a practice I used and I took for granted. I really took it for granted. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, I have to shift this travel practice. And so it became traveling to a different section of my neighborhood. <laughs> you know? Like, can I can I walk down a street that I've never walked down before and just like see the architecture in a way? You know, it started me getting really curious about like the few blocks of my neighborhood here in, in San Francisco. Before that, my curiosity was always piqued at going to exotic locations, cultures, seeing how people live in other parts of the world, the experience of traveling. I love being in an intersection of travel locations, right? Like airports and things where you see all these cultures on top of each other. Like all of that just fascinates me because I'm also you know, so obsessed with humans. Another major one is I would say this is one that people don't know about me and I don't share often, but I'll share it with you because we've been having a lot of fun here. <laughs> um, one of my, one of my main practices is, uh, is pinball. <laughs> oh, wow. Like literally the pin, uh, pinball machines. Like, li- like literally pinball machines. So, um, so I used to play on a league here. In San I didn't even know you could have a league. <laughs> I know. See, if you if you fall into any I'm now hole, curious. Like the things that people are <laughs> people are curious about, like same with swimming or like there's there's a world for everything and the minute that you become curious about something. So my parents grew up in a certain age when there was like a lot of roller skating rinks and pinball machines and I used to go with them. And they taught me how to play pinball and both of my parents are very good pinball players and they taught me how to play. And it is a game of skill. Uh, There is many things about it which I bring to my game design and my experience design practices. One of the main ones is that you learn to lose. (laughs) So two things about pinball. One is the game will always end. 
like you are always going to lose. It's just a matter of how long you get to play. So you learn the Zen sort of this goes into flowing. Like you learn to just let go. You're like, yeah, the game's over. Like, that's okay. You learn to kind of lose. Two is same thing sort of with maybe your swimming scores is like sometimes you hit a high score. You might not ever hit that high score again, but can you enjoy playing the game again? And so that's where like my parents taught me like, if you just enjoy the fun of the game and the, the and for me, it's very kinetic. It's, it's different than a video game. I don't really like video games. Um, there's a physical quality to, I am moving a physical ball in physical space, but letting go of like, both I'm aiming for a high score. Obviously I want to get a high score, but I'm not going to always hit my high score on that machine. And yet I can still have fun every time I play. And so that, however, I don't know that my parents were even really teaching me that consciously but i learned a lot from them it's like yeah this i have a lot of fun doing this and i can use that aim of trying to get a high score and also just have fun even if i don't get the high score so pinball yeah <laughs> probably not what you expected a very random curious answer <laughs> no but it's it's really perfect actually because it's like i i guess in life you're not all in everything you try, you're not always gonna, you're not always gonna win, you're not always gonna hit, but it's knowing that you, there's room to get curious again and have another go and you don't know what could happen next time. So not, I guess there's this insight there not to become too focused on the outcome and be curious and just see where it goes sometimes. You don't have to force everything. Mm -hmm. Pinball, who knew, could be one of life's metaphors for a curious life. <laughs> I mean, if anyone next time, hopefully we'll be in person at some point, I'll take you to go play pinball. I really want my children to live a curious and creative life. And I, I'm wondering now whether we need to get a pinball machine. I will I will, I will gladly come over and, and teach them. Anthony, this has been so amazing. And, and I've, I've had this phrase in my head for this entire podcast and haven't found a place to use it. So now it's going to look... Um, really cute to use it at the end but we've talked a lot about brian grazer's book mm -hmm. he says that curiosity yes. is storytelling in that yes. it helps you go on a journey and be able to have an adventure and then share that with someone and then sharing yeah. that with someone and connecting and and giving someone an insight they didn't have storytelling can inspire curiosity and mm -hmm. you've shared with us such a rich story about your life and we've talked about curiosity and i am in no doubt that your story's already inspired me uh, to want to do things and live differently and how i can embrace a lot about what you're talking about so thank you for that and i hope it's also been the same for the listeners it wouldn't feel right if that were a closing statement because that's my closing statement and thank you to you um so if you know what would be as uh, some words or a, a story that you might share to end the conversation today to spark people to go off and shape the next part of their story i would invite everyone to just remember a moment in their past where their relationship with curiosity was less inhibited as one of my teachers would say like that that three-year-old that asks why 20 times is still inside of us somewhere and to know that curiosity is is innate in in this human experience and if kind of touching that place of that less inhibited curiosity can kind of begin to re-spark or remember um, what you already have in there, 
that's all you need. Like that's, that's, that's everything. So I'll end with saying this, when we, obviously we're using English, this is the language that I learned and we're using the word curiosity, which the origins of it are Latin. And when we were looking at the word, cause we're, you know, choosing, what are we going to call this thing? Curiosity is the, the thing we want to use the, the Latin root of curiosity comes from cura who is the goddess that breathed life into humans. And so cura is also the root of care. And there's a very profound quality of what it means to care about something, whether like how much I cared about a certain band when I was 15 or how much I like care about my kid or my lover or my project or whatever. And that care is curiosity. And so if you've ever felt that level of curiosity of someone really asking you without needing anything, there's no transaction. It's just that they're actually asking you a genuine question. How are you doing? And then they actually care about the answer, not just how are you doing? Let's tick the box and move on. So just notice that the, the correlation between what you care about and how you experience feeling cared about or cared for in your relation to curiosity going forward. That'll, that'll do a lot for your life, I think. If just if that's all you take away from this conversation, let's make it that. Um, well, that's a, a really wonderful thought to end on. Thank you so much, Anthony. It's been so wonderful to have you on the podcast and you've left us with a lot to get curious about. So um, thank you so much. Sam, thanks so much for having me on the show. Wish you well. Congrats on this podcast. And I wish such a wonderful and curious journey for what this podcast has in store for it. Thank you for listening to the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. More information about today's guest and any of the resources shared during the conversation can be found in the podcast show notes. To find out more about Natural Born Thinkers, please visit the Natural Born Thinkers website and follow us on Instagram at Natural Born Thinkers. Today's show was produced by Force 9 Audio and podcast graphics were designed by Carl Gamble. Natural Born Thinkers is at the beginning of its journey and thank you for joining us on this adventure. Until the next time.